Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we have got a very special guest. This is a guest whose work I've read for years, really since graduate school. He's done some really amazing work with um, within the rainforest of Samoa. He's worked on HIV AIDS, and he's done some really fascinating work on brain health and healthy aging. So let me introduce you. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Allen Cox. He's lived for years in remote island villages searching for new medicines. He was named one of Time Magazine's 11 Heroes of Medicine for his discovery of a new HIV AIDS drug candidate. He was also awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize, sometimes known as the Nobel Prize of the Environment. Seacology, the island conservation not-for-profit he founded, has set aside over 1.5 million acres of rainforest and coral reef in 69 countries around the world. Paul was both a Danforth Fellow and a National Science Foundation Fellow at Harvard, where he received his PhD. He was then appointed as a Miller Fellow at the Miller Institute for Basic Science Research, or Basic Research in Science at the University of California, Berkeley. After serving as a professor and dean at Brigham Young University, he became the first King Carl XVI Professor of Environmental Science in Sweden. Today, Paul serves as the executive director of the Brain Chemistry Labs in Jackson, Wyoming, where he and his colleagues are searching for new treatments for ALS and Alzheimer's disease. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Paul. It's great to see you. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. I've, I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while. We share a common academic heritage. You trained under Richard Evans Schultes, and I was trained several generations below that, but <laughs> I think we, we share some common interest in ethnobotany for sure. And, you know, when I was in graduate school, I very clearly remember reading your very inspirational book on Nafanua, Saving the Samoan Rainforest. Um, so I thought maybe that's a good place to start to kind of introduce folks to the work that you've done and kind of how you've taken, you know, your experience in ethnobotany to address some of these medical challenges. Maybe we start there. How did you start with Nafanua? Tell us a little bit about that. You know, it was an interesting experience because I uh, spent a year with my family down in the island, a very remote island, where I was trying desperately to find any possible new treatments for breast cancer, which had taken my mother's life. I'd done a little bit of back of the envelope stuff. After she died, I thought about going back to medical school and becoming an oncologist. But then I was reading a book by Robert Coles called The Call of Service. Robert Coles, the Harvard sociologist. And Coles writes, if your passions and interest intersect with a deep societal need, then you're hearing a call. So I went down to see my friends at the U.S. National Cancer Institute. Dr. Gordon Craig was the director. And I said, you know, I'm guessing that if I really devoted my life to medicinal research based on ethnobotany, that there's about a 1% chance I could discover a new drug. And they said, well, we've been talking about you, Paul. We actually think you have a 3% chance. I thought, 3%, 3%, that means there only needs to be 32 other ethnobotanists like me and one of us can hit. So I was pretty excited about that. So we went for a year and just took the children's school books that their school teachers had. My research uh, went into a village I'd never been into before. Lived in a little tiny thatched hut, no electricity, no running water in the whole village. The kids would have hut school. They just and just, uh, and then uh, go out and play in the tide pools for recess. And I apprenticed myself to a couple of healers there. I'm just trying to understand. The sad thing is that I didn't find anything that showed promise for the treatment of breast cancer. 
turned out in their language, the Samoan language, they don't even have a word for cancer. The closest I could find was lumpy breast. And the treatment they used for lumpy breast was inactive in the National uh, Cancer Institute's bioassays. Uh, but then I got a letter from Dr. Craig at NCI saying, hey, you know, did, is there any chance you could find any new antiviral compounds? We're very interested in HIV. Uh, the healers, I'd apprenticed with two healers, had told me about the tree of a, the bark of a tree, Homolanthus newton. Again, translating indigenous disease concepts into Western concepts is sometimes a difficult process, as you know. But as I listened to the symptoms and signs, I wrote acute viral syndrome in my note, you know, with the permission of the healers and the prime minister of Samoa, the village chiefs, I exported samples back to Bethesda, where we found they were rich in a compound called prostratin, a 12,3-deoxyforbol, which showed a really new mechanism of protection from the HIV virus. And I was really thrilled to be able to negotiate with the village, uh, the prime minister, government of Samoa, that any commercial development of this would result in a return, significant return to the families, the village, and the government. And this was before the Convention on Biodiversity had been signed so or even negotiated. So it was a pretty exciting time. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. For, for the listeners out there, the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Nagoya Protocol are established really to ensure that we have equitable access and benefit sharing. Things like this, where you have agreements in place to return benefits if something becomes, you know, enters into commercial development from these discoveries. Yeah, and I think, Cassandra, you would have been really proud of the National Cancer Institute because the patent lawyers they hired, there was no provision in the original patent documents for uh, the healers. So I refused to sign. They said, well, what? You want us to put a witch doctor on the panel? I said, yeah, sure. Because (laughs) I'm just the guy with the book here. I'm just listening to Mm -hmm. the women who tell me what their mothers and their grandmothers going back centuries have learned And so my feeling is that they have an indigenous form of intellectual property rights, and I refuse to go forward unless they're going to be recognized. Well, the National Cancer Institute stood right up behind me on this. It was really wonderful. And we actually changed the folks. So, yeah, so that's worked out really well. Uh, Let me just sort of update the story there. The AIDS Research Alliance licensed it from the National Cancer Institute, at the request, going to Samoa with me to negotiate additional returns to the Samoan people. See, Berkeley, and an interesting thing, the Samoan government declared sovereignty over the gene sequences and the plant that produced the compound. They negotiated returns to the people. And now Paul Winder, a really gifted chemist, a great soul, a professor of chemistry at Stanford, and his colleagues have now tinkered with the molecule, so it's even a thousand times more active than what it's found. And I've, you know, had an article in Science Magazine arguing that any analog of the prostrate molecule should yeah. also recognize indigenous intellectual property rights. So uh, as you know, you know, pharmaceutical development is glacial. It takes a long time. It does. Um, but prostrate is still in play. And um, it shows potential actually clearing people from virus. So it's still not in clinical trials yet, but I'm very excited about what the Stanford team's done. And this is a typical sort of thing that happens historically. A a product is found, a natural product in a plant used by indigenous people. Uh, The molecule is optimized and tinkered with to make it even more active. 
so this is a story that may, maybe isn't over yet. We'll see. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. Yeah, it does take time and it takes, you know, I think many of our best drugs that have come from nature have gone exactly that path where they're optimized through derivatization um, to either increase activity or potency or reduce toxicity. Like this is, so that's exciting that prostatin is still in play. And it's really exciting that there are mechanisms to bring back benefits to these people. Well, they're setting yeah. this down very interesting. In fact, in the negotiations at UC Berkeley on commercializing the gene sequence, one of the sticking points was where discussions, if there's problems, going to be held. And, you know, what do you do? Because they said, well, we want it in Berkeley, California. And the chiefs in Samoa are saying, what's this Berkeley thing? We've never heard of it. And <laughs> the compromise was that it would be held on Samoan soil at the United Nations, at the delegation of the United Nations. So wow. <laughs> this made the front page of the Financial Times in London, um, you know, um, drug development returns going back to Samoa. Uh, but I was saddened by this. Why should that be newsworthy? It seems yeah. to me common sense. Anybody that participates, particularly these people who are the indigenous custodians of this knowledge, definitely should be considered as co-equal partners in development. And so I think it's moving that way pretty much now, but that's not the way it used to be. A lot of times contributions from indigenous people were basically ignored. And I think that's a travesty. So isn't it sad that it makes a newspaper that we're doing the right thing? It should not be a newsworthy event. Yeah, I feel like we're still kind of coming out of the colonial era, right? I mean, all of these major products of plants, if you're talking about whether it's coffee or vanilla or quinine, I mean, those all share the same story of, yeah, of being taken and indigenous peoples not being recompensed well, for those crops. The genius of the Convention on Biodiversity is that it sought to encourage partnerships between technology-rich countries like most countries in Northern Europe or, say, North America, and biodiverse-rich countries, which often are in the South or in, in tropical places. Here's a case where it really worked, where yeah. the government, uh, led by the prime minister, totally were behind this, all the village chiefs. I mean, it was interesting. Somebody wrote in a, a mean letter, you know. I mean, there's always a view that ethnobotanists are sort of somehow covert exploiters in, in the paper in Samoa. And 56 chiefs from the village wrote a response. Said, you don't know this guy. He's one of ours. And we, he's done everything he's done with our permission. The other exciting thing is we're always, and this is a tricky business, we always want to make sure that there's equal sharing of benefits. But what if ultimately those benefits are delayed or there's nothing down the road? Yeah. And we prematurely raise expectations. So in this case, this is where Ecology, this not-for-profit I set up, came in. We built an aerial walkway over the forest that was threatened by the loggers. Now the people get more money from tourist revenues going up on this walkway than they ever Amazing. would logger. I was figuring out the other day, we've spent about half a million dollars there building trails and a little clinic and schools, just simple things that we take for granted here. But mm -hmm. in these remote parts of the world that you and I work are not always provided. So this one, fortunately, has been a success story. And, and I'm very grateful that uh, for my indigenous partners, including this entire Samoan government, who's been very positive about this whole thing. That's great. And so, Paul, how long have you been working with the Samoan government with these communities? How many years has it been now on this project? Right. You know, I think uh, agreements with the 
Age Research Alliance and UC Berkeley date back to about 2000, 2005, 2003. That's mm-hmm. what, 20 years? Yeah. But really, my research began over a decade earlier. The good thing is that I feel as ethnobotanists that we really have to rigorously adhere to a complete disclosure. So before I even set foot in the village, I talked to the government, I talked to the village chiefs. Why are you here? I'm interested in medicine. My mother died of breast cancer. I want to understand your medical traditions. Maybe something can help them. And when we signed a formal covenant called the Folly Lupo Covenant with all of the chiefs and all the villagers um, that codified this. So, you know, I just feel lucky that we, we made the right moves at the beginning. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I think this is this is a path that is more and more being recognized as kind of the standard where it hadn't always been in the past. That's exciting. And I know, you know, you've this this work in Samoa um, with regarding, you know, with regards to discoveries of, of potential medicines, but you've also done some important work in the region on trying to understand some unusual diseases, some neurologic diseases. What can you share with us about that and how your observations as an ethnobotanist led to these discoveries? Sure. Back when I was a graduate student, uh, this, Cassandra, was an era when only two rows of the periodic table had been filled out. (laughs) We had the hubris of sort of dividing the world up, you know. Mm -hmm. Alec went down to the Amazon, and Wade Davis went down to Haiti, and I chose the Pacific Islands and Southeast Asian islands. Islands are interesting because there's sort of like a little natural experiment going on. And I became so close to the HIV-AIDS community during my research that when that started moving, you know, through Stanford, through the pharmaceutical world, I wanted to find another indication to work on that had the same sense of desperation, uh, destruction of work and family relationships. I mean, AIDS in the 1980s was a very different disease than it is now. Oh, yeah. People were losing their jobs, being thrown at. God, was awful. And so I chose ALS. Um, because I just felt there hadn't been any good drugs coming up. Fortunately, I didn't know any ALS patients. But I decided to focus on this, and this took us to the island of Guam. I think we made six or seven expeditions there. Uh, we're in two villages, Umatic and uh, Maurizio. Uh, up to 25% of the people were dying from this unusual paralytic disease. And so what was, can you describe for us what this paralytic disease looked like? Local, I mean, how was it being described by locals and what kind of observations did you make? Yeah, they used, they each had a local name for it. It was called Litigo Bodig, but it was, it had an unusual phenotype. I mean, many people had a paralysis and muscle wasting uh, consistent with ALS, a- amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's mm-hmm. disease. Other villagers had, you know, rigidity or cogwheel uh, tremors cogwheel rigidity consistent with Parkinson's disease. Hmm. And other people had profound dementia, like Alzheimer's disease. So my thinking was that this disease was sort of like a neurological Rosetta Stone. If we could figure out what's going on into these in this village or the two villages, mm-hmm. that we might gain deeper insights in how these very disparate diseases are related. So we went house to house. We had a great neurologist, John Steele, who'd lived on the island working with this Dr. Sandra Bannock, who's now our senior scientist at Brain Chemistry Labs. Um, we had some medical doctors, Patricia Stewart, uh, a very gifted amino acid chemist, Dr. Susan Murch, who's doing a postdoc with me now. She's a 
very famous professor in Canada, it seems like. She sort is, of, I yeah. Sort of, yeah, I sort of linger in agnomy, but my students go on to great things. So great. That, that's exactly the way you want it. And it was like an Agatha Christie novel. Mm -hmm. why, why is this killing these people in these two villages? And what's going on here? I mean, at its peak, it was 100 times more prevalent than ALS anywhere else in the world. Wow. So we're just going door to door, hut to hut, house to house, just sitting, doing ethnobotany. What's fascinating is that, first of all, we're not the first people to get interested in this disease. Uh, early uh, um, physicians, uh, Army, U.S. Army physicians, uh, identified this disease in the aftermath of World War II and got fascinated in it. Leonard Curlin, then at NIH, did a really careful pedigree chart showing that it could not be a genetic disease. It's, it had no familial background. And so there are all these ideas, you know. And I used to get these letters. Carlton Gattachusic, the Nobel Prize winner for his discovery of Kuru and prion disease. I think he shared yeah. prizes with Stan Prusner at UCSF. I'd get these letters from Carlton, and they'd all be in caps and exclamation marks. You know, Paul, what are you doing in Guam? And <laughs> because Carlton espoused that it was exposure to aluminum that was uh -huh. causing Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. This was not such a bad guess because... On examination, postmortem brain specimens from Alzheimer's patients show an excess of aluminum. And mm. when that got out, I mean, all of a sudden people threw away their aluminum pots and pans here in North yeah. America and stopped using deodorant, things like that. But this was not a satisfying explanation in Guam because it's a limestone island. They have a deficiency mm -hmm. of aluminum, um, mm -hmm. which I tried very gently to explain as sort of junior Birdman addressing a Nobel Prize winner. But then we got really fascinated in a, an observation made by Marjorie Whiting. Marjorie was at the Burns School of Medicine. She was a nurse, spent a couple months on Guam, and she made a really fascinating observation that, of you know, you've lived in the tropics, Cassandra, I know you've been a lot of my dad and elsewhere. Any sort of food stuff you have up on the shelf gets bugs in it. Well, she had some flour made of cycad seeds, and there are no bugs. And so she actually said, hey, maybe there's something going on with these cycads. Leonard Curlin and NIH got into this. So, of course, we're very interested in this. Now, the one thing we found out is ethnobotanists. And, you know, I mean, what's your guess, Cassandra? I mean, how many of us are sometimes introduced as one of the top 50 ethnobotanists in the world? Because there's only 25 or 30 of us. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> our boots muddy. Yeah, you know. But one of the powers we have is we learn the people's language, or we do our yes. we adapt ourselves to their culture. Mm -hmm. We don't wear a white coat and a stethoscope. We're not in a clinic. We're sitting with them in their houses or huts. And I think because of our training and our background, we hear things from the people that they're uncomfortable telling uh, clinicians. Of course. Clinic. I mean, have mm -hmm. you found that in your work? Absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah. And, and we found out something really amazing that nobody had heard before in the clinic. And it came from a card sort program. What I did, because, you know, we're interested, is it is infectious disease that look infectious? Genetic doesn't look genetic. So I had a card sort thing where I had everybody we're talking to. I say, write out all the food things you eat. And then I hand the card. I said, would you put these in order of already? And people started getting frustrated because one thing they eat, and nobody at NIH should figure this out, they eat flying foxes. Mm -hmm. These are large bats, genus Tropus, with like four-foot wingspans. 
And one guy, an elder, got frustrated with me. He said, you know, I don't get you, white boy, why you're asking these questions. He said, flying foxes are the most important thing we have to eat. He said, and if there was one right now, I'd lock the doors. I'd eat it myself because people break in trying to get in here. So we got oh, wow. extremely interested in this, extremely mm-hmm. interested in this idea of these people eating these flying foxes because we knew that flying foxes fed on cycad seeds. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, maybe the flying foxes can show us what's going on. And then there's been a lot of work on toxins and cycad seeds long before us. So with Dr. Bannock, our lab then was on the island of Kauai. We had a uh, you know, chromatography equipment, HPLC, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, let's get some flying fox specimens from Guam, from the Smithsonian, or from the uh, Museum of Comparative Zoology. Let's see what toxins they have in their flesh. And we just started down the list. Alphabetically, the first one was called BMAA, beta-methylamine-alanine. I was at home at 2 in the morning. Sandra was still in the lab. Boom, the phone rings. I picked it up. said, Paul, it's here. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, it's this giant peak. I raced over, and here's this giant BMA peak. So we suddenly realized that these people are eating the flying foxes. In addition, they're eating flour from the cycad seeds and tortillas and dumplings. They're getting this massive dose of this neurotoxin. So then we worked to get autopsy specimens, um, post-mortem specimens of people's brains. Because people eat this stuff so highly in Guam, we went to Canada to get control samples, blinded it all, broke the blind, the people that died of this paralytic disease had this massive amount of neurotoxin in their brains, but so did two of the control patients from Canada. What? They're not eating bats in Canada. What's going on? So we got the clinical details. Those were the two, only two Alzheimer's patients. Interesting. So they also had high levels of EMMA. Not as high as the people, but they had high and higher than controls. So what, how do you get that seen in Canada? They don't have cycads just tropical. They don't eat mm-hmm. bats. They, and so we started doing a lot of research. I did anyway, a crash course on cyanobacteria. And suddenly we realized our horror. And I can remember the day when I was driving the Land Cruiser with Dr. Bannock. And I said, you know, there's cyanobacteria as blooms in reservoirs, estuaries, lakes. They're all over the world. And it felt as if we were staring into the abyss. So we called up all our buddies around and, you know, around the world, and I can't remember how many, we, we ran samples of cyanobacteria collected from all over Sweden, Spain, France, and almost all of them had this neurotoxin in their BMA. And we knew that it grows in the roots of the cycad trees. So, uh-huh. and, and then it biomagnifies up through the bats. And I mean, my heavens. So we published in PNAS and PNAS was really moving fast. And once you get on their circuit, boy, they're, and I called up the other and said, hey, can you slow down? I need to talk to some people before this publishes. And he said, Dr. Cox, my entire career, I've never had an author call me up and say, slow down publication. <laughs> yeah. I'd be really grateful if you could delay it. We flew back to Guam. We went to every house, every family, because mm-hmm. I wanted them to hear it from us and not from a press account. And I told them that we felt they were getting sick because of their consumption of these flying foxes coupled with the cycad flower and i'm just yeah. waiting here because as you know cassandra this is sort of like violating the prime directive for ethnobotany we were not there to change a culture we're there to document a culture not change it yeah but here we're telling people our research shows that this is the cause to the person the chamorro villagers said thank you 
We yes. didn't know what was killing our family. And now we can protect our children. Mm-hmm. So, but I'd like you to opine on that for a second. Do you feel I committed a mortal sin there by sharing Absolutely. that concern with the people? Absolutely not. I mean, one of the things that we do with our return of knowledge is ask healers that we work with, community members that we work with, what do they want out of this project? And I would say nine times out of 10, they want to have the science explain to them whatever we find in our laboratory studies. You know, we're not looking at trying to determine causes of disease in my lab. It's more of like, how does plant X work against, you know, bacteria Y? But there's definitely, there's, there's, it's a, it's a important part of the process. I don't see it as change. And I think it, I see it as sharing of knowledge. So yeah. there's a de- democratization, a democracy of knowledge. Exactly. By holding the indigenous people in a, the same esteem we hold our scientific colleagues. hundred percent. Your view mm-hmm. is share the knowledge. Share the knowledge. Absolutely. Especially and then they can make their own decision. And they exactly. Yeah, there's no recommendations that, you know, you should use this or that. It's, this is what we found. Yeah. Well, I had a, you know, an anthropologist pound me on this one. Because uh, you've changed the culture. Well, Ugh. if the culture is killing people. Exactly. No. <laughs> you know, I mean. Is it, isn't, like, that a, isn't that a privileged thing to say, though? Is, you're changing the culture. I mean, why, you know, yeah, these well, are, these my, are my people that. Yeah. I, is, well, do you think this is a zoo? Do you think it's yeah. people zoo animals? There are people just like me and you. Yeah, and we value them, we care about them, we speak to them. So, but I have to tell you, there was, I think there could be an argument that Paul went and changed this culture or did something that could change the culture. It reminded me, though, of Minamata Bay in Japan as I got into that. You know, Minamata Bay was the first indication that methylmercury causes serious neurological illness. And in Minamata Bay in Japan, there was a big factory dumping in mercury waste into the water. It was going, it was biomagnifying in the ecosystem. So the poor Japanese villagers eating fish are getting this massive doses of mercury. Oh no. And the first indication that anybody had was a visiting neurologist trying to figure this puzzle out. And he saw a catwalk side sideways. Yeah. Boom. And suddenly his medical training came in. Oh, you know, this sort of gata effect is characteristic of mercury poisoning, you know? So anyway, I don't know. It, but the people were so kind, so gracious. Uh, they thanked us for mm-hmm. sharing this with them. And then the article came out. We later then produced the village disease in vervets on the island of St. Kitts. These were introduced. They don't belong there. They outnumber the locals. Harvard made a really nice facility where it's all like a zoo. So, mm-hmm. And we never forced any animal to take a diet, take a dose. We just had some that had rice flour and a fruit, you know, a piece of papaya after the meal. Others had BMAA. All the ones that had BMAA developed Alzheimer's neuropathology. They developed ALS neuropathology, and they developed Parkinson's neuropathology. The ones that had the, just rice flour didn't have any of that. So this really is evident that neurotoxin triggers that disease in Guam. And now there's two epidemiological groups come out saying that BMAA is the best supported environmental cause of ALS. So I'm sure many of our listeners here are probably on the edge of their seats wondering, how do they determine if they're getting exposed to these cyanobacteria? Like, what do you have to be eating this to get exposure to BMAA? Or is it enough to live near a body of water where you have these cyanobacteria blooms? Those are really good questions. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We know that, I mean, cyanobacteria blooms 
are the sort of green scum or mat that sometimes mm -hmm. you see in estuaries or sometimes in polluted lakes or rivers. And my advice is to stay away from them. They don't always produce BMA, but at certain times in the life cycle, we think any cyanobacterium can do it. Uh, the place we've been monitoring very carefully now is Lake Okeechobee in Florida. Yes, near my, not far from my home, like an hour from where I grew up. Yes. Where did you grow up at, Cassandra? In, Ar in Arcadia, along the Peace River. So, yeah. Well, what happens is there's a big dam there that sort of increased the size of the lake. But when the water gets high during a wet season, the Corps of Engineers will release water down the St. Lucie River going mm -hmm. to the east to Stewart, the Indian River mm -hmm. Lagoon, and they'll re release it west to uh, down the Caloosahatchee going to Port Charlotte, Fort Myers, that sort of area. And, uh, you know, I was sitting watching television, a news broadcast, when the first 2016 release came, and I saw it. I thought, oh, good heavens. I jumped on a plane right then, boom, went straight down there. When I got there, Cassandra, there were 11 dead manatees, 11, in the St. Lucie River. And the local people that live in trailer parks and then along the St. Lucie yeah. River were calling the cyanobacterial goo because it was uh, viscous. They're calling it guacamole. And the Stewart County people down, you know, or, or I want to be care very careful how I say this, but sort of where the rich people live, mm -hmm. they had signs up saying, please avoid the beach. But when I went up to Lake Okeechobee sampling, um, there were local people there. This is Central Florida. Moms and their kids are swimming, fishing. They came up the lake. Why are you wearing this stuff? Because I'm wearing hazmat gear. And I said, oh, no, this is very dangerous. And they said, well, nobody told us. Yeah. Nobody yeah. Boom. We get back, and they're off the charts in terms of cyanobacterial Oh, my gosh. 20,000 times WHO standards for microcystin, which causes liver so, cancer. Should the and, EPA be monitoring this? This is insane. Or like <laughs> letting people know. I mean, well, there's well, also happens, the sugarcane cultivation there. We have all these fertilizer, all kinds of stuffs being dumped into that river. You know, there's a lot of, of agricultural waste coming into mm -hmm. Lake Okeechobee. A lot of people have septic tanks. We have sewage coming in. Mm -hmm. And this makes heaven for cyanobacteria. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we're, we wrote the Corps of Engineers and said, look, well, before you release that green goo, please think about this really carefully. You need to change the management plan. The center center for the conservation organizations, friend of the Everglades, everybody came in behind us or in support mm -hmm. of it. There was a film called Toxic Puzzle. I should have put that up, but people that click on our website can see that film done by a bunch of European people. Every time that film screen in Florida, standing room only, because people don't have enough information. There it is, brainchemistrylabs.org. If you click on that, see a film called Toxic Puzzle, uh, which the director in Sweden made free of charge to view. Um, people are terrified. Emergency room docs are seeing people coming in. There's dead dogs, dead fish, dead manatees, dead dolphins. It's really scary when these cyanobacterial blooms. And that's the scary part. The good news is just stay away from them. You see that? Yeah. Just don't go up or do it. Just stay away. It's hard if you're living there and if you don't really have the financial means to move away. Well, yeah, that's a neurologist yeah. at Dartmouth, a member of the medical faculty, uh, Professor mm -hmm. Elijah Stommel, read our papers. He started plotting on maps where his ALS patients live in New England. He figures if you live next to a lake that has cyanobacterial blooms, you increase your risk of getting ALS by 25 fold. Wow. 
So we're monitoring the situation there. We're trying to encourage as best we can the core not to release that goo out of Lake Okeechobee. Yeah. And, there, and again, a really heartening thing, there's a very strong bipartisan support in Florida mm-hmm. uh, clean up the water. You know, yeah. From Brian Mast is, uh, has been leading the way and both parties really. And citizens are really concerned about this. So, so you know, that's been a good story. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's an amazing arc of discovery from work with villagers to <laughs> flying foxes to blooms in the Okeechobee River or Okeechobee, Lake Okeechobee. I'm wondering... Is it known what the precise mechanism of action is for BMAA and this? I mean, do we know what its neurotoxic effects are on the brain? Yeah. When I was a kid, you know, they had something called Wonder Bread. that said, build strong bodies. Wait, it was white bread. I mean, good heavens. BMAA has a number of negative actions, but the one we've been extremely interested in is that since it's a non-protein amino acid, our cellular machinery, when it builds our proteins in our brains, mistakes it for a normal amino acid, L-serine. L-serine is one of the 20 amino acids we have in our brain. And we found, and this is, and I really want to give credit here to Dr. Ken Rogers and Dr. Rachel Dunlop. Rachel now works in our lab. She's our senior research fellow. Together, we discovered that if we increase in neuronal cell culture, L-serine, we can stop all protein misfolds and all neuronal death. We did the same thing in laboratory animals, in, in these vervets. If we fed the vervets BMAA at the end of their meal, but then added serine, we could block the neuropathology. We could wow. completely block it for ALS. FDA gave us uh, uh, permission to run our commission clinical trials. Our neurologists in Phoenix and San Francisco and back east and now Houston have been studying it. And it's pretty exciting work. It looks like this normal dietary amino acid, L-serine, may indeed help prevent these diseases. I think the jury's still out. I'd like to see it go through some more trials in a big phase three, but so yeah. far it's promising. So we haven't been beating the drum really till the work's done, but of course. pretty exciting. We've got a trial now for mild cognitive impairment that we've sponsored at Houston Methodist. Mm-hmm. Top-notch neurologist there. Up to 100 people will be enrolled in this trial. And so far, I mean, if you've got a monkey that's having neurological problems, Call me because I know exactly what to do for that monkey. <laughs> for the monkey. <laughs> That's we even saved a dog. We even saved a dog. <laughs> so poor lady brought in her dog and it, it had sort of the doggy version of ALS. Wow. So we, she said, please. And we fell in love with this little dog, Jake. It was a corgi. <laughs> so it had legs play. So we thought, well, are we going to get in trouble for practicing veterinarian medicine without a license? So we got the local vet in Jackson Hole involved. So, you know, it was all up and up. Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, the dog started getting better, and uh, this lady. Well, this lady was so sweet. Uh, Eventually, the dog died, but we kept it in a prime of health for a while, and she gave us a twenty-five thousand dollar gift. We're a not-for-profit, so I called my scientists together. Said, "Now look, in this town, it's a dog-friendly town." I said. You never know how many $25,000 dogs are walking around out there. I said, be really careful. That's amazing. But we should talk a moment about Ogimi because you mentioned before. Well, yes, I was going to transition to that because, you know, I I mentioned before we started recording, I was just there in May. For the audience, Ogimi is a village located in Okinawa, Japan. It is the site of the greatest concentration of centenarians in the world. And... I wasn't, I, unfortunately, I was only there for, you know, a few days. I wasn't able to do an in-depth study. It was just 
while I was in Japan, I had to go and visit and see, just see how, what things looked like. But I know that you've done a more intensive field study around diet and healthy aging and brain health. I'd love to hear about what you found from that study. It's just a remarkable place. We've made seven Mm -hmm. expeditions there now. And I really want to thank my colleagues, Masayuki Kishimoto and his brother, Masuhara Kishimoto, Chiba Kimi, other people who've assisted me. Ogimi is on the northern tip of the island. It's the most isolated Mm -hmm. number of hundred-year-old people there. I've now, you know, I've completed 50 one-hour interviews with 50 of the denarians. Again, you know, I initially thought, well, maybe this, these people just have gene, a genetic basis for being youthful. I can't keep up with them. I'm crying. They dance. They can remember yes. <laughs> their childhood. Wonderful people. Um, so we brought samples of their entire diet. And again, doing card sort routines, just like you learn in ethnobotany. Back to our laboratories in Jackson Hole, where we have a, a really strong analytical chemistry platform. Analyzed them. And we find these people have the richest diet yet recorded in the world for L-serine. Put this in perspective, um, the average American gets about three grams or so of um, L-serine from dietary sources. Uh, the average woman in Ogimi who's 100 years old is getting 8 to 12 grams. Wow. They're getting it primarily from, they, have, they eat 25 different species of marine algae of seaweeds, and some of those are extremely rich in L-serine. They eat a lot of tofu. Uh, And very little rice, which is interesting. They might have a little rice in the morning as sort of a porridge, but they're eating tofu. And get this, Cassandra, they're eating tofu as part of their religion. They have their own language, which is different from Japanese, different from Mm -hmm. Okinawa, and I've been learning it. They always sort of think it's cool. Here's this guy that, (laughs) you know, at least talked to him about the plants and language. Uh, But they have their own religion, and they get together, oh, every week and a half, and they dose themselves with, with seaweeds and with tofu. We, they also eat a lot of pork, which is very rich in L-serine. That's what I found that was really interesting, a lot of wild boar. I was staying with a farmer on my visit, and he was lamenting how the wild boar eat his pineapples, but he would catch them, trap them, and eat them. And very, I was surprised, I think, based on other things I've read about the communities, that they had such a meat-rich diet in that sense. Well, that's the only one they do, though. It's very yeah. They don't eat shellfish. They'll eat nope. dried bonito, which again, which is very mm-hmm. rich in L-serine. And they eat sweet potatoes. They call them benihimo. Yes. And mm-hmm. they're purple and they're beautiful. Those are rich in serine. Yeah. Now, do the people know about serine? No, of course not. But how could I distinguish if it was a genetic disease or not? Well, I was visiting with the matriarch. It's a matriarchal culture, which is cool. The women call the shots there. And the matriarch, a 19-year-old young woman, brought out punching cookies to greet me. And as I was going to leave just on a hunch, I turned to her, I said, how old are you? To this 19-year-old. She said, 54. I said, were you born in this village? She said, no. I said, why are you doing here? She said, well, I married her son, the matriarch's son. And then, and this is where, praise the Lord, inspiration comes in. I said, do you have a sister? I said, where'd you come from? She said, I came from Kagoshima up in mainland Japan, Kyushu Island. I said, do you have a sister? Yeah, she's just a year or two years difference in age. Do you have a photograph? She brought it out. Her sister looked like a normal 56-year-old Japanese woman, whereas this 54-year-old woman looked like she was 19 years old. Wow. And there's no way that she had any participation in the genetic basis of Ogimi. So suddenly, 
I got really interested in diet and we've analyzed that diet. And I don't know if you had a chance to take some meals there, but when I'm eating that village diet, I, I feel a little bit more spring in my step. And uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe psychosomatic. I don't know. The women are just so amazing, you know? Yeah. But I was interviewing two 98 year olds who lived together. One of them was bouncing. I couldn't even get the camera to slow down. You know? And as I got ready to leave, she came up, she put her arm around me. Now, this is not a typical behavior in Japan, in Japanese culture, okay? Yeah. She put her mouth up to my ear. That is also not typical. And in J Japanese, because we speak in Japanese, except when I'm talking about plants, they speak in other language. Yeah. She says to me, it's kushi desh. She says, you're sort of cute. She says, <laughs> oh, dear, you know. So when I finally got down, there weren't any hotels. This was one of the first trips. Got back down to Nagano or wherever it was down to the main city called my wife i said barbara i've got this 98 year old woman hitting on me and barbara said well is she hot i said well yeah she said, be careful paul be careful i love it i was so i had a nice visit with a woman named yuki i don't know if you if oh yeah yuki. Have, yeah, i know yuki yeah. Really well. yuki. Yuki is, in japanese means snow Okay. Yes. She was like, just the whole time we're talking, she's folding origami for the school children. She says her hands are busy the whole time. She just baked like a thousand cookies for the school children. She's just, I mean, her energy. I was like, I need this energy, whatever you have, this mojo. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was oh, no, just they're incredible. They yeah. The exercise, they play their sanchin, these little three ukuleles yes. dance. In fact, if we can bring up that uh, website again, because on this film, the Swedish team made, brainchemistry.org, they spent a week with me in the, there we go. If you, if, there we go, there we go. So if you click on this toxicpuzzle.com or come into the brainchemistrylabs.org, you'll see some very nice film they made of these women in Okinawa. And I can literally not keep up with them when they're dancing. Yeah. They're just, and they're so amazing. I'm talking to this lady and she was about 97, maybe 95. And I go through a whole, carefully structured interview. You know, have you had any medical issues? You've ever been to the hospital? She said, well, yes. I said, well, how long ago? 20 years ago. What happened? She said, well, I was bit by a hamu. That's a poisonous snake. I was bit by this poisonous snake. And I said, well, what did you do? She said, well, I killed it, of course. That's great. They're just a hoot. I used to, of course. I really have so much fun down there. And oh, I love it. I was so touched because the last trip, I got ready to leave and the uh, council, the chief's council, the mayor's council sent a messenger. He said, Dr. Cox, could we please meet with you before you leave? Sure, you know. So I go over and they said, we just want you to know something. They said, we have never met a foreigner who's shown us more respect than you. Oh. And they gave me a proclamation from the council declaring me as a friend of wow. Isn't that sweet? You know, that's I was, amazing. I was so cool. touched, you know, so touched. But amazing people, amazing stories. When I was first there, I asked a woman, tell me about the war, which war, the world war, which world war. <laughs> I'm dealing with hundred year old people. So it's like, yeah, it's like being in a time machine, you know, Incredible. to have them tell me about, I mean, and I think what happened is I, I actually teared up because I said to one of the women, she'd lost her son in world war II. And I said, you know, I have so much respect for your culture. I mean, I've been learning Japanese and can speak a little bit and learning their poetry and just the stuff you do as an ethnobotanist. And I said, I'm so sorry our countries went to war. I'm so sorry for the loss of your son. I, and, and I shed a tear and somehow word spread around. 
And, you know, that's the thing about the joy of ethnobotany that doesn't get into yes. the papers is you it's feel such an affinity with these people yes. and you respect them and you admire them so much. And it turns out there's a little bit of that reciprocity that they, yes. they look at us as being maybe a different sort of person than the tourists they've met before. Or whatever. Of course. Would, would you agree yeah. with that? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. People often ask me, what's my favorite field site? And I'm like, it's not just about the landscapes or the plants. It's the people. And each place is so uniquely wonderful. And there's so many different stories with people from different places where I've worked. It's, you know, it's. And you don't even need to know to go to an exotic place. No, to meet yeah. sort of people. I mean, I was in Honolulu and I went to the Samoan bakery, asked people, where do you go? You're sick. They, I hear the name of the same woman. I go meet her in some little apartment. Here's this totally practicing Samoan healer. Wow. So I said, well, what happens when there's something in the Samoan floor they don't have in Hawaii? She said, oh, I just call, pick up the phone. I get it in 24 hours. Somebody brings it up on the plane. That's great. You know, 24 That's hour emergency service. Yeah, you know. So it's, uh, it's really cool to meet these Express people. Service. And I, what I teach my students is the most important thing we can show is respect. That if Absolutely. you walk into a new village, I've done that a number of times. I've never seen a foreigner before. If you think these people are benighted or savage, you don't have to open your mouth. They'll know that. But if you go there, you want to humble yourself, respect their culture, learn. I tell my students, your goal as an ethnobotanist would be like a little puppy that soiled the carpet. We don't kill little puppies that soil carpet. We put them on a newspaper and teach them. And that's exactly <laughs> the position you want to be in because unwittingly, the second we walk in, we're violating their culture. We yeah. basically want to tell them, look, here's why we're here. Please teach us, help us. And if you show that respect, that communicates to people. And that, I think, is maybe the most important part of an ethnobotanist toolkit, but the most difficult. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. <laughs> it is. I think that's so well put. You have to have the right mindset of openness and, and humility that's the key. And those are not easy things to teach. I agree. It's, but I just want to thank you, Paul, for sharing these stories, for sharing your wisdom and the, the journey that you've gone on really to work in collaboration with people and make these great discoveries. I've long admired your work and it's been such a treat to speak with you. Well, I'm honored to be here. I just want to be clear. I don't think this is my wisdom. I'm the guy with the notebook. I just sit with these women who are 100 years old telling me these amazing Mm -hmm. things. Or I have these great colleagues. I mean, the scientists with me in my laboratory. I hardly know how to turn the machine on. I mean, there's these kids (laughs) doing amazing things. So I just sort of feel like I'm the lowest leaf on the tree, but I listen carefully. And I like what you've done here, Cassandra, because what we listen to are stories, ultimately. We're with indigenous people, and the truth is in the story. And if we can record the stories, just perhaps... We not only understand their use of plants better, but we get a deeper sense into our shared humanity. And that's what makes it so fun to be an ethnobotanist. That's the perfect way to end this show. Thank you, Paul. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, for bringing out a great show for you each and every week. You can learn more about the work that's being done in at the laboratory. It is the, what's the website again? It's the brain brainchemistrylabs.org to find out more about this work and also access those resources, including the additional film. 
And you can also learn more about the podcast by heading over to foodiepharmacology.com. You can find links to our full video version of this on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. And of course, don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future upcoming shows. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time. Thank you.